Welcome to Moving the Rock. Whether sales is all you do or only part of what you do, the strategies and tactics of success can often feel split between two realities. You can become someone you're not to earn the recognition and praise of people you don't respect, or you can try to figure it out on your own, knowing you'll underperform your potential. We're here to offer a third way. The idea that you can't have success without compromise is just wrong. You don't have to compromise to win in the long term. You can play the game in such a way that you win in the short term and the long term. Through our hard lessons learned, we can shift your way of thinking and create a better way. I'm Chris, founder of SightShift. And I'm James, founder of Florist Group. If you're tired of the status quo, we're here to help you move the rock on your career, your business, and your life. Welcome. All right, Chris, uh, we're back again, brother. And uh, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna start this off with a uh, shout out uh, to a conversation you and I had earlier today. And uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, for me, this is all about recognizing our humanity and um, and me as a co-host of a podcast. Right? There's this, there's this idea that um, we have to think about. Is this to feed our ego? Is this to feed our desire to be known as a teacher? Or are we trying to connect with people and also trying to learn a little bit more about ourselves? And I feel like just like when I coach people, uh, I learn a lot about myself and I learn a lot from my clients. I'm doing the same thing here with you um, on these regular weekly podcasts. Um, and I, I don't know, do you feel the same way? Yeah, yeah. I was about to say, I feel the same. It's like, I'm leaving in this journey, you know, inspired and uh, honing my ability to be customer centric, to be a servant leader, to, uh, to really f- deepen my application knowledge of the wins model. And I think that's what's, what makes you know, a powerful space. We were just talking about this. There has to be teaching and there has to be community. If it's just teaching, no community, you know, who, who are you really helping? If there's community, but no teaching was the center. But, but even though in a podcast format, you're not connected to the audience, you and I have community here. Right. Uh, we're openly processing lessons we've learned, wins, losses, and what we're unlearning and learning, things that are at the edge of our consciousness. And that's what makes, you know, something like this powerful for the listener. And this is how I feel about some of the favorite podcasts I have that I listen to. I'm experiencing this unfolding moment with them. You know, uh, I may not be in the, the studio or at the microphone, but I feel like I'm sitting somewhere listening to them talk. And uh, yeah, that's what makes... That's yeah. what makes this stuff we do important and matter and special. So yeah, privileged to be cool. here. That's cool. Uh, well, so I appreciate that very much. Um, so the thing that's on my mind is this, you know, we're talking about sales and selling and getting better at um, our chosen profession and moving into mastery and then finding levels of mastery that we can elevate to. Um, and, uh, but, but it's really worth paying attention to the fact that we all have insecurities that drive the decisions we make and the actions we take and the outcomes we create, right? So these insecurities uh, need to be identified, right? If we're gonna if we're gonna achieve higher levels of mastery, and so for the listener, 
uh, the listeners, there's more, hopefully there's more than one <laughs> out there for the listeners. You know, the, the, uh, conversation we had earlier was me kind of exposing some, a, a, a story from my past that, um, I, you know, maybe I'm not proud of it, but I'll tell you what, the fact that I remembered it and, and, um, brought it up in the context of the, um, the teaching that we were doing, I thought was really great. And it really helped me, uh, shed some light on who I am and who I was, how much, how far I've come, but also helped me think about where I need to go. The example specifically was, uh, early in my marriage with my bride, uh, we, you know, we, we, we were challenged to, um, have kids. It's not an uncommon story, but it's something that we, we went through and we're not, um, opposed to talking about it because it is something that's very common. Yeah. Um, now my two daughters are both juniors, right? One in high school and in college. So we had some success, but back then, you know, we, we were challenged by this and, um, the year I had a great year as a salesperson. And so I want to do something for my bride, right? I want to do something special for her, meaningful that she'd never forget something grand. And, you know, today I, I think this to myself, like an idiot, right? I went out and I spent a just ridiculous amount of money, um, on jewelry for her, specifically a big ass diamond ring and two big diamonds for her ears. And, um, I was super excited, but I wasn't like internally, I wasn't like, it wasn't like, I wasn't at peace. I wasn't really super, uh, comfortable with the idea. So I shared the gift with one of her best friends who was in our wedding party, you know, meaningful person to both of us. And she looked at me and said, they're beautiful. You know, what are they for? And I met, and I said, they're for, they're for my bride. And she said, are you nuts? Are you crazy? She, she gave me the look like she was slapping me across the face without slapping me across the face. And I immediately, uh, you know, my, my discomfort was confirmed, right? That I had chosen the wrong grand gesture for my bride. It just didn't connect. And uh, I took, I took the gift back and, um, that was that, uh, at the moment, Chris, I didn't recognize, you know, what I was doing. Right. I mean, the, the disconnect for me was I bought those for me. I bought those to satisfy the insecurity that I had, uh, around who I was and what I meant to the relationship. And I really didn't know at the time. I also totally misread my wife. And what's interesting to me about this is I had no real true understanding of who she was and what she valued, or I wasn't really interested in knowing or recognizing who she was and what she valued. It was much more about me in that moment. Um, and uh, it's, it's just a great lesson to be reminded of and a great uh, awareness uh, of how our insecurities can drive the decisions we make. And, you know, cr and we can be a little bit self-destructive. Uh, we, can, we can take actions that really don't serve us. And then it leaves us in a situation where, where we're kind of worse off than we were when we started. Yeah. It, you know, it, it's something we've talked about in numerous ways, the key word motive. Like, what's that motive for why you're doing what you're doing? And, you know, in a personal relationship, like with your spouse or a sales relationship, um, 
if I'm there for what I can get out of it, I'm being deformed, made worse as a human being through this activity. So powerful moment of awareness for you. Wonderful clarity on the story. And, uh, you know, whether you want to share that on the podcast or not, but I think the significance of the amount makes the story even more powerful because it's like, that matters, man. That was a big chunk of change. And, and that chunk of change speaks to the fact that, you know, it's not like you're insidiously evil. I love my wife. I want her to feel amazing. But more of this move at least 51% of it, maybe 60%, 70%, 80%, 90% is for how I can feel about what right. I'm doing right. in this grand gesture. And right. uh, really, really great awareness and uh, props to you. You had that feeling and you noticed it. And while now as we age and get wiser, we notice it quicker and act on it most of the time, maybe not all the time, you still didn't press and force that and create some kind of fight that would be a TV show movie moment. Right. Why Where don't you? Yeah. She didn't react the right way. And, and, and not that she would do this. I'm not saying, but if you imagine the TV or movie moment and then you get upset and she's like, I don't even want them. And throwing them <laughs> at you. And, you know, it's, the whole, it's so easy to imagine that because it's so common. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know me. Uh, yeah, man. It's like, so yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, and it, whatever the amount is for anybody listening, it would be, you know, you know, it'd be, you know, just think of a big amount of money. That's ridiculous. based on what you make in a year. Yeah. It was just stupid, right? We've never spent that much money on a, on a car, let alone trinkets that immediately depreciate in value once you buy them. Right. Because you're paying, retail, et cetera. Um, yeah. So, so why are we talking about this today? <laughs> we're talking about, you know, we're talking about this concept of in sales of, uh, the always buyer. And we've talked about an always customer. We've talked about triggers and hooks, always buyer. Well, the question for me, Chris, is really how well do we understand our buyer? Mm -hmm. And can you understand your buyer uh, through the filter of your insecurity as a salesperson mm -hmm. through the filter of your goals as a salesperson through the filter of the things that drive you if those things really don't have much to do at all with your customer right in my analogy you could consider my bride um, my customer at that moment i actually was delivering her the exact would have delivered her the exact wrong thing I would have gotten bounced out of the office on my ass. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I, now I'm thinking about why I even asked her friend essentially for approval. I think I must have known I was doing something stupid, but, you know, which is why I asked her in the first place, which we'll get into later. Uh, you know, but you can also think about the person who sold it to me, right? When you buy diamonds, right? The first thing that the salesperson says is buy what you like. Well, what happens when you start looking at stuff? Oh, you know, this isn't as good as that one. That one's not as good as this one. Uh, she's worth more. And all of a sudden, the insecurity, you know, the salesperson is leveraging the insecurity of the buyer to increase the sale. Now, in this case, they had a really insecure dude <laughs> who was willing to spend, you know, a lot of money. And they ended up 
ultimately losing the deal because I brought the stuff back. Dude, I, I think – can I put an exclamation mark on that for a second? Because that's the thing that, you know, over and over and over as a theme in these episodes with the wins model, um, you can't skip over it. So we've actually never talked about this before. I was actually in a business group for a while with um, jewelers, uh, some fashion people, but a lot of jewelers, and uh, learned a ton about the industry. Actually hired somebody years ago uh, who was like a top performing um leader and salesperson for uh, a top jeweler in the state I lived in at the time. And crazy, 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 just learning all of the stuff about markups and the way they spot customer and all that. (laughs) I get that somebody that made that sale could be like, who cares? I, I just did this giant thing. But no, you took it back. And thankfully, that business cared enough about their reputation to honor, you know, what had happened and and they could resell it to the next person who was maybe gonna make somebody happy uh but that's the thing it's like when you rush in when you skip over you get into these places but that this alignment isn't there that you know it's this phrase that i know i've heard you say that i've highlighted on these episodes a shadow of a compromise is going to create so much of a problem later and I get excited and I want to rush in. And, and sometimes it's, it's not that I'm rushing in because I'm looking out for myself. You know, if I put myself in the place of that diamond salesperson, it's like, I'm excited this person's going to spend this money and go make somebody feel extravagantly happy. It could be altruistic. But I haven't really paused to ask these questions. Yeah, it's still still misguided, right? Um, and that's best because it's still all about the the seller, right? The altruistic purchase. Wow, it's important to me. Well, you know, so what? What's important to the buyer? Um, and uh, you know, when I first applied the wins model uh, back in probably two thousand nine or two thousand ten. I, re- I don't remember the year as well, but I remember the moment, right? I was, uh, I was actually uh, talking to my coach and, you know, the, uh, the, um, I was really excited because the client wanted to move forward. And that, and my coach said, look, James, in, in order for you to apply what you've built here in the most meaningful way, uh, you know, when that if that client is so excited to work with you that they that they're ready to write you a check, if you're not ready to take it, you you cannot take it. In other words, if you're not sure that the rec, that you can you can create a recommendation that's going to be meaningful for them, then you cannot take their money. So you know this analogy of to your point, Chris. You know somebody somebody puts money in front of you and says, "Yes, I want that." If you don't know why they're buying it, and if the why isn't aligned with the recommendation you would make, then you must push that check back mm-hmm. and you must validate and confirm. And that is so antithetical to the way most salespeople are portrayed in movies, that most salespeople are portrayed in books. It's antithetical to the way, to that egocentric approach that is sold um, as the outcome or the promise of learn our methodology, learn our process. You're going to make boatloads of money. People are going to be throwing money at you. 
And that's really not, it's not life. It's not reality. It's not how you build a business and how you build a brand. It's not how you uh, achieve longevity. Oh, maybe the subtitle here is how to not so how to, this is terrible. I'm just doing this live with you now. We'll make it way better. But, uh, but how to find the better way in sales and leadership other than sociopathologically trying to manipulate your way to being the alpha. Obviously, right, right. I'm wording it very short for market. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing. It's like who, who, who and, 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 you know, even some of the most advanced conversations I hear on this topic so often, they get beyond being the overt alpha and it's just giving techniques and tips on being the subversive alpha, you know, it's still manipulative, still manipulative. Right. You said something that, uh, I don't remember if it was, it was one of the sessions we were doing with, we were doing a training session a month ago or so. And, uh, you were asked a question and you basically said this, if, if the question is grossly obvious in the answer, then it's manipulative. Do you remember saying yes. that? Yes. And I actually wrote that down because I was like, that's that's a great filter for, you know, it, what, as we get more advanced in these lessons down this journey, uh, this wins model, the point isn't asking questions. The point is guiding to a shared path, shared goal with these questions. Of course, then what we get to do today is as you notice this shared path and shared goal enough over time, you start to notice these dynamic personas, right? You start right. to form the pattern recognition. Right. Yeah. And I think when I said that it was the conclusion um, to a conversation that started with, you know, a, a conversation around manipulation, right? Mm-hmm. So what is manipulative? And um, at, its, at its core level for me, you are manipulating somebody when you are you know, trying to move them in a direction that is not in their best interest. Mm-hmm. So it is not shared. And, mm-hmm. pe- and buyers know, right? When they, this idea that people love to buy as much as they hate being sold, um, they love buying when the salesperson and, and, and the buyer are aligned mm. and the buyer feels like they're being supported in their mission, mm-hmm. their vision. Now, when I'm out there buying jewelry, um, yeah, if the, if the salesperson had said to me, uh, if I said to them, look, I'm looking for something special for my wife. If the salesperson had said, well, tell me about her, you know, and they began to learn more about her, what would have happened? They would have realized that I was making the exact wrong purchase, <laughs> mm. right? They would have realized that it would not have been in my best interest to do that. Now, instead, you know, I can imagine myself in a situation. Why wouldn't I, as a salesperson, want to close a six-figure deal and, you know, hold up that contract for all the other salespeople to see so they could see how wonderful that was? And they could celebrate me, uh, right? Even though it's at the, the expense of somebody else, why wouldn't I want that? And why wouldn't I do it if it's in front of me? I mean, after all, this person I'm dealing with, the customer is an adult, right? Who am I to judge what they want? 
right? But but are we are, are we operating in you know their best interest? And so you know the things we're talking about aren't black and white; they're not cut and dry. But um, you know there is a there is a responsibility that we have as salespeople to be thinking about the bigger picture, right? Uh, now, thankfully, they were not manipulative. I mean, they were they were serving me, but they did make a sale that ultimately came back. And the question really is, how often do we do that? How often do we make sales to people who aren't going to get max value, who aren't going to recommend us, who may end up being terrible customers, who may end up needing more more service and more attention than we want to give, who may end up costing us more money than we can afford, who may continue to bleed us dry with over service uh, by over servicing them because they weren't the right fit. I mean, how often do we make those mistakes? Yeah. Well, and, and I think that, you know, this was a question that uh, a company had reached out for some consulting um, and they were asking about this idea of how do you turn what you have into more? Um, you know, people say they go through our stuff and it's life changing. And I just asked, do they tell other people it's life changing? And And they're not. So they're not having referrals come in. So then it may not be life-changing. I mean, I don't know, but it may not be. They may be saying that to you out of politeness or feeling like they want to make you happy. But unless they're, you know, bringing people in and there's things you can do to make that easier and that whole deal. But, uh, yeah, there's a meme account on uh, TikTok that takes business terms and does a lot of fun stuff with them. And one of them was like this interview and it's like, okay, uh, trying to talk about churn and and then like the millennial was interpreting what the business term really is. And it was awesome. It was so on point, you know, churn. And it was, we made shit that uh, they don't really want or sold them shit they don't really need or something. And, and you know, if, if people, if it's a shared goal, shared path, if there's that alignment, uh, it's, it's impacted them, then maybe they don't return it, right? If it wasn't an impact, if it wasn't a shared goal path, like your story, but they don't come back for more and they don't bring others with them. And, and if we do that shared goal, shared path, and we met that need, you know, they come back for more if, if that's needed, maybe they do graduate on, um, but they sure as heck tell others, you know, even if they don't have a big network, even if they're not super influential people. And, um, that's uh yeah so so what i'm really interested in in learning more about from the practical standpoint how do you help speed up people's perception or awareness on this idea of a persona and figuring out what that persona is right the persona of the always buyer mm -hmm. so it's uh really important so when you so let's get into some practical stuff uh you know, recognizing that there's all kinds of selling out there and there's all kinds of sales processes, all kinds of uh, tickets in terms of, in terms of dollar values and so forth and length of time of a sales process or a buying process. We'll, we'll distill it. Um, and here's how the wins model understands that. Um, there, when you think about the wins model, wants, impacts, needs, and solutions. The, the beauty of the wins model is that these four steps also translate to buyer types. So the wants buyer, the person understands what the organization 
wants. Um, and we're thinking B2B because it's a more complex sale. And we can distill this to B2C if you want to. But in the B2B more complex sale, the, the buyer who, under, who decides what the customer wants, what the organization wants, is the decision maker. They determine if there is an active buying cycle or not. The decision maker determines what the company, the organization, the department, the division wants to achieve, what their ultimate goals are, because those ultimate goals are going to be attached at some, at some level to the uh, business plan for the organization. So the decision maker is the wants buyer. The economic approver is the impact buyer. The economic approver determines whether or not there's an economic impact that's big enough to make the purchase um, a priority. And that's going to that's going to determine the business case. Mm-hmm. So you've got the decision maker is the wants buyer. The uh, economic approver is the impact buyer. And then the users and adopters, they're the needs buyers. These are the people who are actually going to be using what you uh, or applying or adapting or adopting what you end up selling. They're the ones that experience the actual missing um, um, capabilities or the barriers that prevent them from getting their job done. So the needs buyer, they're the users and adopters. And then the solution buyer is the evaluator. Now you might, um, if you, if you, if you uh, get your leads by running, um, um, search engine optimization, and you're meeting people who are, you know, interns or analysts who are out there looking for and putting together a bunch of your competitors to put together an analysis and go through a dog and pony show. Yes, they're the evaluator. They're looking at solutions. Uh, ultimately, the ultimate evaluator that you want to be engaged um, is the decision maker, right? You want to build a solution that's designed for that decision maker. But um, in in the context of a you know traditional B two B sale, that solution buyer is the evaluator. They're the person at the at the end of the process who's going to evaluate the options and make a, either a recommendation to the decision maker or make the ultimate decision. This so is, if you think about it, go ahead, man. I don't want to throw you off. Can I make a comment? Yeah, real quick? Okay. yeah please. So for me, this is what's so powerful. I mean, if you're selling a widget solution. Boom. Simple. Not a complex thing. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously there's copywriting techniques, frameworks, you know, the whole thing. But nothing for me has been such a light bulb moment like this idea of, I don't want to sell to the solution buyer. I don't want to sell the need buyer. I don't want to sell to the uh, impact buyer. I want to sell to the want buyer. And what, what that showed, what that shone a light on for me was the things that I've had work that I didn't know we're working, where I tend to connect more with the CEO, founder, owner, a relationship develops with him or her. And then as I impact them, it transcends uh, or it flows down through the team and the organization. Times that it wasn't working in a way that was optimal, it's because I was jumping into an economic conversation, you know, a need conversation, a solution conversation. And so demystifying more complex B2B engagements, it's the wants. Right, right. Wants buyer. That's who you want to build for. Exactly. And, and you know, if you think about, so let's think about this as roles. Don't These are buying roles. Don't think about these as titles. 
Thank wherever you, you thank sell. you. I can I can get stuck in that. Thank you. Yeah. Well, th- you know, so so a CEO is going to decide what made it. Maybe the one that decides what the company wants, but maybe it's the board of directors. But the CEO is not going to d- decide maybe what a department wants. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So who's the head of that department? Yeah. Um, the other thing to think about is that oftentimes the head of a department or the CEO actually is the ultimate economic approver. They might use their CFO. Uh, or they might look at their budget allocations for the year and, you know, start looking for guidance around where the, where they can get money from. But ultimately, it may also be that the CEO or the, the P&L owner of a, uh, of, a, of a division or a business unit might be both the wants buyer and the impact buyer. Mm-hmm. Right. So so what we want to do is think about those those roles, those buyer roles, and then think about who inside the organization plays those roles, the organization that we sell to. When, you know, when the door-to-door salesman comes to my house to pitch me a different cable service provider, right? They're looking at me, I answer the door, you know, if they're if they're judging their, you know, buyer based on stereotypes, they might say, oh wow, it's the dude, it's the man of the house. It's very possible in their minds they're thinking that I'm the decision maker. I'm the economic approver, and I'm the needs buyer, the user and doctor, because I watch TV. And so they might be looking at me saying, great, I have one person who plays all the roles, and now I can make a one-call close. The same thing may happen in a B2B environment where you believe that because you are selling an enterprise decision and you're talking to the president or CEO of the business, that you now have the decision maker the economic approver, because she can make, she can pull budget from anywhere to pay for your service. She also recognizes because she, she might also recognize the need because she actually uses the technology that you're selling. And she, you know, may need input from other people, but ultimately she's the one that's going to evaluate the solution and decide uh, and compare it to options and to make the decision. So you might believe that you have you know, one person at the head of the organization that you have to talk to. Mm. Now you may be wrong, mm. but what's nice about the wins model is that you can you can um, leverage the model to evaluate exactly the role the person you're talking to plays, and exactly the gaps in the buying center that you're trying to build that you have to build or identify in order to make that sale. You can identify those gaps, and you now have a model and definitions for each of those buyers that you can pursue. So you can know for sure if it's a one call close to one person or after, or you're going to use the first conversation to qualify them and then direct to the buyer that they bring the other members of the buying center in for the second conversation. That's awesome. That is, uh, yeah, I, I'm so glad you clarified that because that is something that I can get stuck on and the times that I've, you know, stopped and said, who else needs to be a part of this decision? It's just such a great question that opens that up. And I know you've got like 72 different ways you can word it. Right. Um, so, right. so the big thing that I hope people aren't missing is these personas aren't like you think about a persona in terms of marketing where you're building a psychological or demographic persona these are these are buyer personas 
along the, you know, once buyer, impact buyer, needs buyer, solution buyer. And uh, sometimes they're all four. Right. Sometimes they're all four. And sometimes you've got 15 people in a steering committee who represent these four. Uh, when I sold enterprise software, my favorite technique, and it doesn't happen much anymore given the pandemic, but my favorite technique was to fill the room with as many people that could be in the buying center as possible. One, because one big reason was because these 15 people or 20 people, the odds of them ever sitting in a room together to focus on this one buying decision is rare, right? It never happened before I invited them to the meeting. So the first thing is they all get to sit face to face with each other and hear what each each other thinks. And then they begin to recognize the roles that each of them are playing in the buying decision. And they get to hear from each other about what their priorities are. So we're building, we're, so they're getting together. They've never gotten together before. Um, I'm organizing the buying process for them. I'm making it efficient and effective. I'm also helping them gain clarity about what other members of the buying center care about. They're all considering now what other people care about. They're, be, they're creating a consensus around what their priorities are. And I'm actually not only managing the sales process, but I'm actually managing their buying cycle for them because most organizations are not really good at buying stuff. You know, a purchasing department is not there to make great buying decisions. The purchasing department there is to minimize risk, period. It's not to drive growth. And as we all know, you know, when you're building, if your goal is to build value for an organization, you can only minimize risk so much. You can only optimize efficiencies so much. The only way to really achieve um, max value for an organization is to drive growth. And a purchasing yeah. department is not built to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, I love it. We don't want to try to minimize growth. We don't, or we don't want to try to minimize just risk or just increase profit. Both of those matter, the efficiencies. We've got to not stop short of anything less than driving growth. Um, and we're on the path to do it, understanding these personas. And once buyers want growth, they understand. They want growth. They want. They may want to protect the brand. They may want to improve a certain area of the business. They may want to uh, cut costs or drive savings. Again, depending upon the overall mission of the organization that they represent. But whatever that want is, that is going to be the driving force. That's going to that's going to create the active buying cycle. The economic approver is, is going to is looking for that compelling reason to prioritize what the decision maker wants among all the other wants that the decision maker has identified. The needs buyers is really going to, they're going to define the, the uh, requirements for making the decision, right? Uh, now, so, and then of course the evaluator is going to put it all together and, and, and create the comparison. And you want, again, if you're an enterprise salesperson, you want that evaluator to ultimately be the decision maker. Now, just, just to, let's talk about some situations we can run into. The most common place for us as salespeople to enter a, uh, a buying cycle is typically at the user and adopter level, right? We, we tend to get the most interest and the most conversation with the folks who are experiencing 
the problem themselves, right? Mm -hmm. I don't have, my process is inefficient. Um, I'm not meeting expectations of my my boss of the organization because I don't have these tools. Uh, We're ineffective, we're inefficient. And those are the folks that salespeople tend to spend the most time with. And then what ends up happening is the salesperson and the needs buyers come to consensus about what they need. A proposal might even be presented, but those needs buyers have no clue really how to navigate the process inside the organization for making a decision. They then take that proposal, show it to their boss, their boss says, yeah, it's very nice and throws it in the trash because they can't, they don't know how to navigate. They're not going to learn how to navigate for this one, this one option. So as a salesperson, if we're starting with the needs buyer, the best thing that we can do is understand where they are. And then by virtue of understanding them and enlist them as your partner in the next steps, which is to say, if you really want these needs addressed, I can help you but I need your help as well, right? Here's what we have to do in order to make this happen. I need to build a case that creates a business case that the business can buy into. And this business case must also contribute to an overall goal and objective that the, that the um, leaders of your organization have already committed to. That business case is the impact and that commitment is the want within the organization, right? That that big goal the organization has. And so if that needs buyer can help you gain the insight into what's gonna drive impact the organization is gonna care about and, and to what goal the organization has that you can attach the solution to, now that needs buyer can help you help them <laughs> address the gap that they are experiencing and improve their life, improve their livelihood and, and um, achieve all the benefits that they seek. So that's what we have to do as salespeople is figure that out. And and the point of identifying this set of personas, this set of people within a buying center that we are looking to identify, the point of doing this is, is to help our salespeople understand here's the best case scenario. We're looking for this type of person as a wants buyer, we're looking for this type of person or persona as the impact buyer, needs buyers, Uh, solutions buyer. These are the characteristics you're looking for. This is how you move between them. If we can create that example, then we can train our our teams to be that much more effective and be that much more resilient when it comes to navigating uh, a real life buying situation. Dude. Okay. I can't help but comment on this. I think it's a great time to give people a clear opportunity to get more. Jimmy, we're on video while we do this. Most people will hear it by audio. We're we're doing this. You're not reading from notes. Like you've so lived, eaten, breathed this, slept it. (laughs) You know, you, I mean, can you imagine if you're an organization out there and you could get these four personas dialed in, built out, I'm, I appreciate I'm thinking about our application together with stuff we're doing. Um, so where would people go listening that are just like, I, I need that now if they want more. Well, I mean, reach out to, uh, reach out to us at Flores group. I'm happy to send out something that we refer to as a, um, as a buying center anatomy. 
that'll help get you started. And, you know, this is all documented and ready to rock and roll in our Sales Leadership Academy, uh, you know, which is, which is really uh, the result of, you know, years and years and years of application, testing, trial, over 6,500 cust- cust- companies, over 10,000 working sessions. I mean, it's all there, well-developed. And, and yes, despite all that, it has to be tailored to every organization that we work with. So you've got to come with this level of curiosity and you've got to come with this desire to get past the insecurities and the other mindset or limiting minds, the limits to your mindset or limiting beliefs that might prevent you from gaining the awareness that you need to have about who your always buyer is. If you can do that, though, man, the world's your oyster, right? Everything becomes easier. Let's not make hard things harder. Let's make them easier. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Let's get past our own insecurities. Let's get past what we think should be the case. And let's look at the reality of it, man. And I'll tell you, life becomes easier. Growth becomes easier. Customers love you more. And man, you're like bouncing when you're walking down the street instead of like dragging your ass to work every day. (laughs) It's a great picture to end on. Bouncing down the road person. It's a pleasure, my man. Thanks for spending time. Always. Thanks for listening. If you've learned something or were inspired to try something new, please rate the podcast and share this episode with someone you know. If you'd like to learn more, visit and connect with me, James, at floristgroup.com, F-L-O-R-I-S-S group.com. And if you want to connect with me, Chris, check out SightShift, S-I-G-H-T, shift.com. Peace. Peace.